0: Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And
1: I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And
0: we are the Money, the Money Cafe. Cafe. G'day, James. Hey, Alan, how are you? Now, you had a very interesting piece in the uh, Chanticleer column yesterday, uh, talking about uh, Federal Reserve, which we'll get onto in a moment. Yes. One, of the thing, one of the little nuggets in that piece was that US house prices went up 19% in February. I presume that was a year-on-year. Year-on-year, yeah. Still 19% year-on-year.
1: Year. That's a lot. Well, it's the highest in the 45 uh, years of that survey, which is by CoreLogic, you know, the the sort of Australian affiliated group. Um, it is a lot, isn't it? A- and we have seen during the pandemic house prices go up pretty much everywhere, but they're still running in the US, whereas they're not here.
0: I suppose p- part of the difference between there and here is that they, ha- they didn't have the big run-up in house prices last year that that we did, or or did they?
1: Oh, they had a pretty strong run up. Yeah, they from, must have, I suppose. Fr- from about March, April last year, they've right. been running at at similar levels for some time. Yeah, what what they did, what they did have that we didn't have was this sort of post GFC. S- stop in-house building. You know, there's been a, a deficit of house building there for some time, and so, so there's a got, shortage of houses. There's a shortage of houses. They haven't built what they need to for probably best part of ten years.
0: But you, but you also told me uh, just before that we started today that um, institutional investors are buying houses. Yeah. Is that
1: right? Like yes. Who? Uh, well, there's been all, all sorts. Brookfield has had a housing. Blackstone has had a housing. A, a, uh, housing, um, a single family unit housing uh fund buying, going around and buying up houses just or just and, sort and of all over the place they
0: haven't like bought they, they haven't bought them as like a They haven't bought a no, half no. a suburb or no, something no they
1: they're essentially in the market competing with uh, mum and dad home buyers ordinary home buyers That's first amazing home buyers. that is amazing yeah yeah and, and so it's a they're basically working on the supply and demand thing that the argument is they can see that there's been a 10 year deficit in the number of houses built shortage has built up there's going to be a problem with supply and demand, and they're in there.
0: So they're not bu- they're not building them; they're buying existing houses, buying existing
1: houses, fixing them up, renting them out. Wow! Yeah, and of course we had you know that big uh, sort of REA domain uh, comp- peer uh, in America called Zillow. They were buying and flipping houses for a little while there until it all sort of blew up on them. But um, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of parties in the US housing market buying houses, competing against... So their
0: equivalent of REA and Domain was buying houses too? Buying and flipping houses,
1: yeah. And flipping them, dear oh dear. Yeah, until they uh, suddenly discovered... That
0: is is messed up, James. (laughs) Well, look,
1: we talk about solving the housing crisis in Australia. Imagine in the US there's a few more moving
0: parts there. Yeah, that's right. But you you also talked about it in the context of Federal Reserve policy, right? Yeah. Now, they've come out last night... Uh, and said basically confirmed what the market was saying, which is that there isn't much of a chance of a fifty basis points yes. or half a percent increase, yep next Thursday when they meet yes uh, it's going to be quarter of a percent they, yeah. they kind of did they actually confirm it? I think they did Well, I think they?
1: yeah Powell said his his view was that that's what it, it should be twenty five basis points, right.
0: so and he's the boss
1: he's the boss, and the market rallied on that um because it's a bit of certainty, which is you know fair enough. But the interesting thing, the sort of point I was trying to make in that column was that shelter is like a third of CPI in America.
0: Well, they include mortgage repayments, don't they? Mortgage repayments which we and don't. rent. Yeah, we have rent, but not yeah. um, mortgage. So
1: those house prices will feed through to inflation, and they haven't quite yet, but they will in the in the coming months. So, and if and you know with with. Uh, house prices and mortgage payments and rents adding to inflation, and then of course oil likely to add to
0: inflation uh, in the next little while already too already is. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean so. let's talk about the oil market. It's um the Brent Brent was uh, yesterday, I don't know what it did last night actually, but it was uh, one hundred and ten dollars yesterday. yep yep.
1: I think it increased slightly and then uh, trailed back yesterday. but we had last night we had OPEC had their meeting. And in record time they decided, oh, we don't think we'll produce any more barrels, we're quite happy with where the price is. And the OPEC argument was that the price isn't moving because of actual supply and demand, it's moving because of geopolitical risk, and you could sort of get that. Yeah. But it does have this feeling, it's, it's fascinating These Russian sanctions, they've specifically tried to stay away from the energy market, but it's effectively hitting the energy market because no one wants to be seen to be buying Russian oil. And Russian gas, so there's this effective strike on, on yeah, but a, lot of, but
0: a lot of countries have to buy it, don't they?
1: Well, at the moment, well, gas, yes, definitely, you know, that Europe needs to gas to keep flowing through the pipelines, but oil, there's the, the shippers are refusing to put the oil on 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 board boats, and people are refusing to buy the cargoes, even at big discounts,
0: right? It's, so it's a it's a um, a de facto oil shock it's in de facto a way. oil shock.
1: In fact, the US, apparently last night, there's a proposal for a bipartisan bill that would specifically ban the US purchasing Russian oil. So it's amazing how we've gone from the sanctions are going to, you know, cripple the Russian economy, but we'll pull back from energy, you know, because we all need that, let's be sensible, to like now there seems to be almost a race to be seen to be Um, um, refusing Russian
0: oil, so... Well, I mean, Putin has certainly made Russia a a genuine pariah. I mean, like, more than, uh, like, almost any other country I can remember. And this is... I mean... It's almost
1: a race to be seen to be sure to to be seen to be you know uh, holier than thou on the, on on Russia, which you know that's what sanctions are designed to do. So I guess they're working. I
0: know, but Russia, what Russia is doing in Ukraine is unprecedented. Yeah, really. I mean, it's unbelievable that they just go into this country, a peaceful country that never did anything to them. Yeah, and uh, and they're just bombing the crap out of them. It's unbelievable. So yeah, yeah I mean, I, and I think this is going to last a long time. Yes, this is not going to be a, a quick sanctions or. Uh, pariahhood for Russia.
1: Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? It's going to well, last a long time. Well, there's a really good note from overnight from RBC, sort of making the point that um, the, the, the sort of de facto sanctions we're seeing and the way the war seems to be going, where we're settling into this siege, and okay, there's some talks going on, but it doesn't look like Putin's going to take the sort of diplomatic off ramp and extricate himself from this. No, he seems to be settling in. So. You know, the, the impact, the flow on effects of this to supply chain disruptions, oils in so many products, we're, we're going to be feeling this for a year. And that's where these stagflation concerns come up. Are, are, you know, is the Fed and other central banks going to be raising rates into a slowing economy, which is the the stagflation? Well,
0: it will certainly be the, the case with Europe. Europe would be in res- if gas started to not be supplied. Europe would go in straight into recession, Yeah, absolutely, right? yeah. So they, they would certainly have stagflation in Europe. Yeah. As yep. to the US, I don't know, but... Um,
1: yeah, well, I, th- I think it would take a while, but I, I did see a great quote the- from an analyst the other day, you know, does Jerome Powell concentrate on the stag or the flation? And it's a good question. Like, how how does he get the balance right between fighting inflation and giving them, giving the economy a cushion.
0: Well, we know what Mr Volcker did in 1981. Uh, he put the emphasis on inflation. Yes. And caused a massive recession.
1: Well, and it does have a feel that Powell
0: can't you can't ignore it. I mean, it's at 40-year highs. It's yeah, but, but the central banking has changed. I mean, Powell is so different to Volcker. True, true, yeah. It's yeah. just hard to imagine him doing something like that, deliberately causing a big recession. Yeah, that's true. It's that's just, true. That is hard to imagine. But, you know, I mean, interest rates are going to go up this year for sure. Yeah. And um, and the other thing to think about um, is that we've got the midterm elections in the US in November. Mm. And uh, in 2010, when they had the midterm elections, first uh, Obama's first term, yep. the Republicans won. basically. Yes, they got yes. they got control of the they got control of the um, uh, Congress back again, or the House of Representatives anyway. And they basically stopped uh, spending government spending. Yes.
1: Stopped everything. Stopped
0: Barack everything, wanted to do. Yeah, everything uh, Obama wanted to do was stopped. All the, all the spending and basically what happened was a massive tightening of fiscal policy. Mm, mm. And so what you, what we're heading towards is having a, uh, um, a simultaneous tightening of monetary policy and fiscal policy. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I enjoyed um, that. So and that, and that hasn't been seen for decades. Yeah, that that both has been tightened at the same time. Geez, you're
1: not not making me feel much more optimistic. I I was worried before, but now I don't feel... I feel a lot more worried. That's a great point. I mean, there's all these... I mean, I know there's always things that, you know, the markets need to think about, but it just seems like at the moment there are so many combinations and permutations that we're dealing with. Um, I mean, previous occasions when we're dealing with inflation and uh, geopolitical issues, we didn't have something like the energy transition going on which again adds this other layer of complexity to something like oil.
0: Well, and and uh, a pandemic still. I mean, we, yeah, haven't, that's got, we true. haven't got
1: out of the pandemic yet. No, no. I so, keep sort of I keep ignoring that as we as our case numbers, you know, yeah, solidify in the thousands still.
0: Oh no, and in Australia, we got half the country's underwater. Yeah, shocking. It's terrible. Shocking.
1: Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, there is a lot. There is an awful lot going on to. to for, for investors to be thinking about at the moment, it's it's hard.
0: And here we are in the short straw cafe, having in a very a chat. privileged position, aren't we? <laughs> Sun shining.
1: <laughs> I read a great column this week by a guy from Bloomberg called Matt Levine, who's who's sort of a very different type of columnist. It's a very conversational, you know, esoteric column almost. But he he did make one point with the Russian sanctions that he, he felt a little bit uncomfortable about the way maybe their effectiveness in, in, in the way they've sort of frozen Russia's money that w- once upon a time we might have thought those federal reserves were fairly untouchable. You know, that, that's Russia's money. It, it belongs to them, you know. You can't do anything about it. But the, the way that that money's been frozen, and I guess we saw something similar in Canada with the protesters there the blockading Ottawa, they froze their money too... It's interesting how weaponized, I guess, um, bank accounts that we would have thought were
0: quite safe have become. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's a couple of aspects of that. One is that um, how central the US dollar is to the global the global economy. We always sort of talk about it being the world's reserve currency, yeah, yeah, the US dollar, and now we're seeing what that means, <laughs> yes. which is that uh, the US government actually controls what happens to it, mm. and they're in a position to. Uh, freeze people's uh, holdings of it. Yes. And secondly, um, Switzerland has joined in, right? And so previously, uh, uh, kleptocrats like Putin, who've, you know, you know, all over the world, all these characters have uh, hidden their money in Swiss bank accounts mm. because mm. Switzerland always maintains neutrality. Yes. But suddenly they've said, no, we're, you know, you can't, get, you can't have access to your bank accounts. Yeah, yeah. So that's a big change as well. Yeah. And it is,
1: it's hard to feel any sympathy for the Russians, but you do sort of wonder we're using this tool for good at the moment, but if someone used it for sort of evil purposes... Sure. ...it's interesting that, to see how effective it is. Like It, it stops the music so quickly. It's, it's a weak... It's but it's, a,
0: but I, I was reflecting on this for a column I wrote in the New Daily today. Um, there was actually a period, uh, so, so um, uh, in August 7, 1971, Richard Nixon uh, ended the convertibility of the, the US dollar into gold, right? Yep. Closed the gold window, yep. which meant that from then on, you had to, for, for global trade, basically it was US dollars. You, you know, people were able, prior to that, were able to tra- transact in gold. Yes. And yeah. really after that you couldn't do it because you couldn't convert the gold into um, into US dollars readily in the same way. And then in 2008, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah. Which is the, you know, the other alternative currency which mm. has so far only been used as a speculative asset, right? Hasn't really been used as a currency. Yeah. And so I... I had this column where I was speculating that maybe Bitcoin is Putin's way out of the sanctions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh,
1: well,
0: I'm, and apparently there has
1: been an, a lift in uh, activity in Russia yeah. of, of trading Bitcoin, and whether it's the state or individuals, not really clear. But
0: well, as a result of the sanctions on Iran, yeah, they have become uh, huge miners of bitcoins. Right. So they actually mine five percent of the world's bitcoins. Wow. Iran does. Jeez. Using
1: are they burning oil to do it or how are Probably they what's sure. the
0: power source? I bet they well they I don't think they have got much renewable energy in right. Iran but I don't know actually. So do you feel this point.
1: do you feel this strengthens uh, the effectiveness of these sanctions strengthen the case for Bitcoin and well, other uh,
0: Putin th- uh, Russia's going to be as we've just discussed Russia's going to be locked out of the global financial yeah. uh, economy for a long time possibly a long time, permanently isn't it? yeah so they're going to have to find an alternative yeah now i don't know whether it's renminbi and maybe they'll just join up with china and start trading in renminbi um but maybe uh, bitcoin could be part of the answer i mean yeah. they've got if if they if they can't sell any oil they'll be able to convert it into bitcoins hmm. and start mining them yes
1: although i did see overnight the tax on ethereum which is sort of like the what it costs to trade, basically. It's all being donated to UK- the Ukraine at the moment. So, you know, th- th- perhaps oh, yeah. these things aren't quite as uh, uh, hands-off or unbiased as people might think. So.
0: Well, the thing about, obviously, the irony is that Bitcoin was invented as a libertarian uh, uh, tool. Yes, know? Uh, obviously Mr Putin's not a libertarian <laughs> no, it could become the
1: dictator's choice Is that what you're suggesting? I am, yeah,
0: that's right yeah. Which would be ironic Indeed, indeed um, We've now, uh, just before we get on to questions Tell us about the reporting season You've, you've been all yeah, well, over that what, how, did the, how did they go? Well, I think they went okay Given
1: the circumstances I think we the, the, the ratio of profit beats to misses Was sort of four to three
0: So that's good um and by that we mean beats of the analyst, analyst forecast yeah market and the forecast. analyst forecasts are all uh, all come out of guidance provided by the companies indeed so, so we're talking about the companies beating their own guidance essentially yes which um, they manipulate yeah in exactly, the sense that exactly. They, they keep the guidance low so they can beat it
1: and we should say four to f- the, the so ratio of 4 to 3 is lower than it usually is to your point
0: I mean, the, uh, the point I'm, I suppose, making is that it's all bullshit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit of a merry-go-round. You're right. You're right. I, I think earnings were okay given, but, but I, I think my point would be, I still don't know, like, I can't barely remember what normal looks like. Like, I don't know what a normalised cost base for a lot of these companies are. I don't, they don't either. I don't know what a normalised revenue base looks like because we've had so many disruptions on top of each other. It's, you know, last year the companies were giving us 2019 figures and saying, oh, that's what normal looks like. But 2019's three years ago now. It's a bit meaningless. Yeah. So I think we're still searching for what norm- normal looks like and we won't find out prob- until probably the end of this year yeah, because that's when the supply chain disruption should ease. They might not now. We've got Russia uh, sort of hanging over the world. So... It's a, it's an interesting time to be a CEO. Like Most CEOs now would have never run a company through a period of any inflation, any labour shortage, and any sort of disruption like we're seeing at the moment with the pandemic and supply chains. So it's a huge test had for it CEOs. Easy. Everyone's but, had it easy. Well, they, 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 you know, they'll tell you how busy and tough it's been, but they haven't seen anything like this. So it'll be fascinating to see how... They're going to earn their money now. Yeah. But it's, it's, there's some really tough decisions to be made, like how much do you uh, raise prices or do you try and keep them lower and grab market share? Do you give up a bit of profitability to increase your position? There's all these little decisions. You get one right and you'll do well. You get one wrong and you... you you, you could stuff up things for you, well, you could yeah. stuff up things for three or four years yeah. if you lose market share by taking too much profit.
0: And speaking of searching for normal, we had the GDP numbers yesterday. National accounts three point four percent month on uh, quarter on quarter yes. for December, um, which which it was actually three point four three percent, and the previous high was um, September twenty twenty was three point four percent. Right, right. Yep. So it was it was just above the September 2020 uh, number, which means that it was the highest growth rate since 1976. Yeah. And so that's a long time. I mean, the economy was coming out of recession then too. Um, But the thing is, I showed a graph on the news last night uh, showing GDP quarter on quarter um, and and the the obviously the volatility of the past two two years has been incredible. Yeah, you know, yeah. down seven percent, up three <laughs> percent, down two percent, up three. I mean, prior to that, it's all like this chart of um, half a percent or you know somewhere between point three and point seven percent.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's a great example of where what does normal look like? I, I don't know. I don't
0: know. We're going to have to get find wh- where it is. Yeah. Yeah. And and
1: things, you know. Things are the same, but they've also changed. Like uh, labour shortages and oil, oil energy prices. There's there's some real structural, structural things in there that would it'd be fascinating to see how they settle. I don't know what the answer is, but there's a few little wrinkles in there that are worth thinking about.
0: Let's go, let's go do some questions, eh? Yeah, absolutely. First one's from Daniel. Now, um, okay, so Daniel says, I'll read
1: this one, and you you. Uh, Get ready. Uh, Daniel says, thanks for your podcast. I wanted to get your thoughts on the best way to manage when one partner has a high super balance or will in the future whilst the other has a low super balance. Potentially in retirement, this will mean one partner going over the cap whilst one being sub $100,000. Is there a way to split?
0: So I asked our uh, Eureka Reports SMSF coach, Olivia Long, to answer this. And she wrote back to me, because she's always terribly thorough and writes stuff down. <laughs> and, and what ha- what happens is she gets her compliance manager to uh, make sure it's okay. Uh, so um, so if you have an older member approaching the 1.6 million cap, there are a few strategies you can use to keep their balance under the threshold. One, re-contribution strategy. If the older member satisfies a condition of release and the younger member is eligible... Now, just, Daniel, I mean, you, you and your partner might not be older and younger, but you can take this yes. as, in the same way. Yes. Um, okay, so high balance, low balance. Um, so the high balance, re-cont- recontribution strategy, the older member satisfies a condition of release and the younger member is eligible and has not made any non-concessional con- contributions. You can withdraw up to $330,000 from their super account and contribute it to the younger member by way of a non-concessional contribution. If they don't have a full condition of release and they're eligible, they could consider a transition to retirement pension, which would enable them to withdraw up to ten percent of their super balance in one financial year and re-contribute that to the younger member. So, do we get that? You, you, you can you can you can uh, uh, contribute wi- withdraw up to three hundred thirty thousand and contribute it to your partner. Right. One, uh, oh, it's a one off, though. It's a one off. Yep. Or uh, if you transition to a retirement pension. You could withdraw up to ten percent of the balance and contribute it as um, non-concessional to your to the other to your partner. Gotcha. Number two, in this scenario, you could also jump on the MyGov to see if the younger member has any available prior year concessional contributions available, and withdraw a further lump sum to contribute to the account as a concessional contribution. So the question there is whether the uh, your partner has. Uh, prior year concessional contributions available that that weren't made. Yep. So you just need to check that out. Yep. Number three, super splitting to a spouse is another option. Essentially, any concessional contributions you've received for the last financial year can be split up to 85% to your spouse on 1 July of the following financial year. It's 85% as tax of 15% has been made. Sorry, it's 85% because tax of 15% has been made on the contribution. This amount, which is split with the spouse, doesn't count towards any caps. Nothing gets lodged with the ATO. It is all a function in the super fund. Therefore, doing this strategy is unique to SMSFs. So I don't know whether you've got, whether it's SMSFs, you've got Daniel or super funds. So if, if it's an SMSF, you should be talking to your accountant about it. If it's the super fund only, if you're in a big super fund, or both are in big super funds, you probably just need to talk to them about how you might, contribute or Mm. withdraw some money and give it to her.
1: But Daniel's got a few options.
0: He has a few options,
1: yeah. Which is good. And your SMSF coach is fantastic. Oh, yeah, she's a ripper.
0: Uh, Peter and Leslie say, as holders of ANZ Capital Notes 2, which are being wound up, we wonder why ANZ have made it so difficult for us and presumably other retail investors to invest in Capital Notes 7. Surely there should be a simple rollover process for faithful retail investors. ANZ advised that the new regulations made it difficult to issue risky investments to retail investors and that we would need to qualify as wholesale investors. Is the same shake-up, shake-out of retail investors going to happen with the capital notes of other banks? And if so, how should, how should we operate? We've tried our best, read the prospectus, opened an account with a nominated syndicate broker, transferred our ANZ holdings to ANZ Share Investing and then requested advice from ANZ Share Investing on how to apply. ANZ advised that they would get back to us on the application process, but when they did on March the 1st, it was to advise that they have no allocation of capital notes seven available to us, and therefore the process was irrelevant. Makes you proud to be an investor in ANZ, not. Uh, Okay, uh, do you know anything about this?
1: I I do, I've done a little bit of research on this one, and and Peter and Leslie, uh, I don't think it's ANZ's fault. The, the, The law changed last year in October, to the Corporations Act, changed to um, impose obligations on the issuer to determine appropriate target market for notes, and in this case, the target market was defined as uh, wholesale investors or retail investors receiving personal advice. So uh, there is a window for retail investors, but if unless you have an advisor, uh, that that window's not open to you. Whose bloody idea was this? Uh, that that I do not know. Is
0: this the that?
1: That's that, Pe- that Jane Hume. I'm not sure. I, I can't answer that one. But to Peter and Leslie's question, I think, yes, there will be a shakeout of retail investors going to happen with the other capital notes um, because of the change in the law last October. I think ANZ's probably
0: first off the... first cab But off you have the to rent. go and fork out to some financial advisor.
1: Yeah, or be a wholesale investor. That's a disgrace. Yeah. Uh, yes, well...
0: I mean, it's not too hard to be a f- wholesale investor these days. I mean... Uh, you have to. Let me just quickly look up the. I think it's is it still five hundred thousand uh, dollars. Well, it's investable wealth. Oh, hang on, I had it a minute ago. Um,
1: the, I, I guess uh, there, there is a bit of a bar that that that's shifted there, though.
0: Oh, it's t- it's two point five million in assets and annual income. Exceeding two hundred and fifty thousand, so oh, it is a bit, a bit hard. You've got to have a, but that two point five million includes your house, right? Okay. So, uh, Given you know, a lot of people prices, have got a two and a half million dollar house now because yeah. of the way house prices have gone up, But that's part of part of what's happened, is the percentage of Australians who qualify as uh, wholesale investors has gone from one point nine percent in two thousand and two to sixteen percent now. Yes, three million. Extra people... Yes. ...have become wholesale investors because of the rise in house prices.
1: It, it does seem quite it's surprising, not. though, why, why retail investors have been quite comfortable with these products up until now are suddenly should be deemed to be uncomfortable
0: with them. I know.
1: Is it the nature of hybrids or...? Well, I, don't, I don't know. I More don't know. investigation required. But, Peter and Leslie, unfortunately, the law's
0: changed could rather than some, ANZ changing policy. Could be some successful lobbying by the financial advisory sector... Hmm to um, get some guaranteed business perhaps a question
1: from jordan uh, he asks can you explain where the money goes to when someone purchases bitcoin or any other digital currency via an exchange if for example 100 million of us dollars uh, was spent on purchasing bitcoin where does that money go and what happens if the next day it was worth 101 million who is coughing up the extra 1 million if there is a, if there is a if a withdrawal was made is there a reserve of cash, and could it sustain a large exit of Bitcoin holders?
0: So, Jordan wants to know about his $100 million, <laughs> presumably. Yes. Uh, well, we can help you there, Jordan. Um, the answer is that Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies are just like any other asset. If you buy them, the if you buy some of them, the money that you, you pay goes to the previous owner of the asset. Yes. So, you've bought them off that person, and that person gets your $100 million. And then, if they go up in value to 101 million, that's your million dollars. Mm. It's just basically as simple as that. So it's not a it's not, an exchange is not a bank. No. It's not as if there's not kind of you're not making a withdrawal. You're buying and selling an asset. Yes, and, and, and that's the point. To, to you, you don't
1: withdraw. You have to sell. You have to yeah, liquidate so the asset to get to, so to it, get yeah. the money.
0: So if the value of the thing goes up to 101 million, uh, and you've made the extra million. The person who coughs up the million is the person to whom you sell the asset. Yeah, the buyer. The buyer. Yeah. And and that's how it works. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Kerry says, after a two-year search, I found my dream block of land at the start of 2020. paid a large amount to my architect and the tenders have come back ranging between 50 and 90% more than the original build budget. Oh, bloody hell, Kerry, I feel for you. That's terrible. (laughs) I don't know whether to wait and see if if when supply catches up to demand with both labor and product availability, or just suck it up. Could you in general discuss or offer your thoughts on building industry sentiment? If ProBuild can't survive, is there a bigger picture to consider? Now you've been writing about ProBuild, what's yes. going on?
1: Well, uh, ProBuild is part of our ridiculous commercial construction industry. Where a bunch of very large companies, ProBuild was one of them, do extremely complex large projects, often in the hundreds of millions or even higher sometimes, on margins of 2 to 3%. 2 to 3%. You're building a $1 billion... They're supermarkets. <laughs> it's crazy. It is insane for the complexity. And why do they do this? Because the owner of the project, so the property developer, uh, they ask for a fixed price contract. You know, and because it's competitive out there, the the bidders fall over themselves to take on all the risk of the project. And what happens when they get caught with uh, rising labour costs, supply chain disruptions? They go bust, like Probuild does. The, the whole risk sharing model is insane. Like, why would you agree to do a billion dollar project or a six hundred million dollar project on a two to three percent? Um, At a fixed-price contract. a fixed-price contract, which gives you no room to move. In, in fact, because there were lockdowns last year, ProBuild and other uh, large builders would have been paying penalties for going over time. It, it's just crazy.
0: Yeah, but that's got nothing to do with Kerry's situation. It doesn't. You know, because ProBuild's up building residential it houses. It doesn't.
1: But some of the pressures that are on ProBuild and the reasons they went under... Are, are the reasons that Kerry prices? Yeah, Carrey's that's right. Because
0: people, because people do get fixed price contracts for their house. Yes,
1: yes. But the problem that Kerry uh, is finding is that supply chain disruptions have pushed up building product prices. Uh, the labour shortage, the closed borders, has pushed up the cost of trades. And so, uh, fifty to ninety percent doesn't surprise me. From what I'm hearing out in the in the residential building sector, um, the if you want a good builder he's probably he or she is probably booked out this year probably booked out most of next year and so if Kerry wants to wait for supply to catch up to demand might be waiting another couple of years I don't know what the holding costs on the block of land are but you'll need to be really patient really patient
0: so should he should he uh, should he wait uh, or suck it up I think it depends on
1: his circumstances. Can't has, he, has, he got, has he got somewhere to live now, what are the holding costs on the land? But but
0: no, he's he's, on a, he's in a tent on the block. <laughs> well, it's if, starting if, to leak. If, if it's getting
1: it's getting rough. If that's the case, I'd buy a new tarp for the tent because you, even if he wants to get going now, he's going to be waiting a, uh, a while. So
0: yeah, and I'd say also go for the fifty percent increase, not the ninety <laughs> yes. percent.
1: Indeed. Uh. A question from Jason: How effective will financial restrictions be on Russia when they are a tech-savvy country in a crypto, DeFi-enabled world?
0: So that's what I was talking about. Yeah. About maybe they can use crypto to get out of it. Yeah. I mean, they need to have other people. The thing is, if you um, you can you can trade in bitcoins, obviously, but if you want to convert them into a fiat currency, whether it's US dollars or rubles, yeah, you need to use an exchange. Yeah. And that's where you get into trouble because the exchanges can uh, can ban you. Yes. Um, So in order to so what I talked about this morning in the column was the fact that uh, you can actually keep uh, or uh, engage in investing in Bitcoin and trading in Bitcoins uh, without using an exchange or a wallet, which are subject could be subject to bans and sanctions. Right. But you have to you have to know your 256 bit code. Right, because bitcoins use standard two hundred and fifty-six digit uh, encryption, and they uh, they in order to so you don't have to remember two hundred and fifty-six digits. They um, in brought in what was called what's called a, um, uh, a a phrase. Right. So it's twenty-four words. Okay. Yeah. That provide the uh, the basically the the code for the 256 digits, mm. as I understand it. I, I mean, I, I, I confess that I have not done this myself. I'm not a Bitcoin investor. So So this is just so of what I've been told, right? Um, and uh, the, 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 phrase, the phrase, the 24 words are generated by an algorithm. Right. So right. It's, not a, it's not an actual sentence. Right. It's just okay. a random collection of words. So it's pretty hard to remember. You'd have to write them down. But if you wrote them down or you were able to remember them, as long as you had access to the internet, you could get access to your bitcoins at any time and transfer them to somebody else without the use of an exchange or a wallet. So (laughs) so Russia could basically bail out of the entire financial sort of institutional world, the fiat currency world, using bitcoin if it wanted to, as long as its trading partners were also happy to receive bitcoins in return, that's an interesting question, yeah. I and mean, as long
1: as Vlad can remember his twenty-four word password,
0: exactly, <laughs> that's it. He's probably got somebody who's standing by. Who could, he keeps it next to the nuclear codes. He's got the twenty-four words written on a piece of paper on a silver platter, yes. standing beside him. But um, the only country that so far uh, brought had Bitcoin as legal tender yes, is El Salvador.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, El Salvador. Yeah,
0: and how's it going for them? Uh, well, tourism's <laughs> up 30%. Right. Tourism's fine. Everyone's going to their, to El Salvador to be tourists, apparently, and spending bitcoins. Okay. Uh, so that's going okay. But I don't think it's helping their economy much, apart from the increase in tourism.
1: Right. I'm not sure I'd be going to Russia as a tourist at the moment. I, I'd probably get a good hotel deal.
0: Well... I know, but the question is, are they going to be able to buy and sell stuff with yeah. China? That's the Yeah, that's, the, that's the big one, isn't so it? So will China start to accept Russia's bitcoins? Mm. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a great question. Mike says, and this is not a question he's picking up, Stephen, from last week. He's not here to defend himself. He's so, not here to defend so himself. So please go, please go on. <laughs> He says, I'm a fan of the podcast, however, I thought I would point out a few things I found a bit confounding in the last episode from Stephen. One, the hands-off approach from the US was brought up as a sense of frustration, yet no mention of the fact that Putin is unpredictable and a nuclear-armed state. Even early on, this was painfully obvious and we're seeing now with the escalating threats that it is a justified position. OK, Mike. Number two, the news media bargaining code was hugely flawed. It only helps the larger media companies and further stifles independent journalism. Who are completely locked out, and he goes on to castigate Stephen because Stephen said that the uh, bargaining code's great, you know, because uh, Crikey and well the New Daily and a few other smaller outfits like the Guardian are getting money, are actually getting cash mm. from Google and Facebook. Yep, uh, and so Stephen thought this was good. Uh, obviously, Mike reckons that these outfits like Crikey, etc., are what he calls uh, larger media companies. Yes. And so I don't know quite who Mike is talking about as if being locked out. Yeah, well, I think... Maybe Mike's know. got a blog and he's not getting any cash.
1: <laughs> Maybe. Look, uh, yeah, the well. news bargaining code's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, I think even if you ask Rod Sims, he would say it's perhaps not the perfect solution, but it's a solution. Yes. A, a way of getting some money out of these guys. Yeah. And we love Rod, don't we? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we admire him. He's he's, he's he's done okay. He's punchy. Yeah. He's going. That's right. <laughs> he is going, yeah. Uh, and Brad doesn't have a question either, but it's worth reading out. Thanks, guys, for reading the question. Keep up the great work. I listen every week from France. Well done, guys. I'm going to ask a question on Brad's behalf. Yes. Do, do you think uh, Macron played a good hand in trying to Uh, convince Putin to... um,
0: to, No, Putin
1: used him. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's interesting, isn't
0: it? Was that ridiculous photo with the two of them sitting at at each end of the long table? Yes. yes. In this white, you know, room. Mm. Oh, that was terrible. I just don't think think Macron looked too great out
1: of that. Well, there's a great story with that because apparently uh, Macron was told that if you want to have, have a photo shaking hands, you have to go seven hours early to the palace and get a PCR test by Putin's doctors. Oh. And so Macron said, stuff that, I'm not doing that. Which, as it turns out, it's probably a great decision. So that's why
0: they were so far away. Yes,
1: because Putin's terrified of COVID, apparently. Oh. And so... um. As it turns out, Macron made the right decision because having a photo shaken in Vlad's hand right now probably wouldn't look too good uh, on the international stage. So. No. Yeah, that Not one worked right. out for you.
0: Anyway, good anyway, Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of Money Cafe. Stephen Maynard will be joining me next week. So send in your questions for him and me uh, at, to the, at the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week. I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And until next fortnight, he is James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Thanks, James. Thanks, Alan. Great fun.